In some moods, we are apt to question the wisdom and the right of God to try us. So often we murmur at his dispensations. Why should God lay such an intolerable burden upon me? Why should others be spared their loved ones and mine taken? Why should health and strength, perhaps the gift of sight, be denied me? The first answer to all such questions is, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? It is wicked insubordination for any creature to call into question the dealings of the great Creator. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Romans 9.20 How earnestly each of us need to cry unto God that his grace may silence our rebellious lips and still the tempest within our desperately wicked hearts. But to the humble soul, which bows in submission before the sovereign dispensations of the all-wise God, Scripture affords some light on the problem. This light may not satisfy reason, but it will bring comfort and strength when received in childlike faith and simplicity. In First Peter 1, 6, we read, Wherein, God's salvation, ye greatly rejoice. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations or trials, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Note three things here. First, there is a needs be for the trial of faith. Since God says it, let us accept it. Second, this trying of faith is precious, far more so than of gold. It is precious to God. Compare Psalm 116.15 and will yet be so to us. Third, the present trial has in view the future. Where the trial has been meekly endured and bravely borne, there will be a grand reward at the appearing of our Redeemer. Again, in First Peter 4:12 and 13, we are told, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. The same thoughts are expressed here as in the previous passage. There is a needs be for our trials, and therefore we are to think them not strange, we should expect them. And two, there is again the blessed outlook of being richly recompensed at Christ's return. Then there is the added word that not only should we meet these trials with faith's fortitude, but we should rejoice in them, inasmuch as we are permitted to have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. He too suffered sufficient then for the disciple to be as his master. When he hath tried me, 
Dear Christian reader, there are no exceptions. God had only one son without sin, but never one without sorrow. Sooner or later, in one form or another, trial, sore and heavy, will be our lot, and sent Timotheus, our brother, to establish you and comfort you concerning your faith that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 and 3. And again it is written, We must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Acts fourteen twenty two. It has been so in every age. Abram was tried, tried severely. So too were Joseph, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, the Apostles, etc. 3. The Ultimate Issue I shall come forth as gold. Observe the tense here. Job did not imagine that he was pure gold already. I shall come forth as gold, he declared. He knew full well that there was yet much dross in him. He did not boast that he was already perfect. Far from it. In the final chapter of his book, we find him saying, I abhor myself. Chapter 42, 6. And well he might, and well may we, as we discover that in our flesh there dwelleth no good thing, as we examine ourselves and our ways in the light of God's word, and behold our innumerable failures, as we think of our countless sins, both of omission and commission, good reason have we for abhorring ourselves. Ah, Christian reader, there is much dross about us, but it will not ever be thus. I shall come forth as gold. Job did not say, When he hath tried me, I may come forth as gold, or I hope to come forth as gold, but with full confidence and positive assurance he declared, I shall come forth as gold. But how did he know this? How can we be sure of the happy issue? Because the divine purpose cannot fail. He which hath begun a good work in us will finish it. Philippians 1, 6. How can we be sure of the happy issue? Because the divine promise is sure. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Psalm 138, 8. Then be of good cheer tried and troubled one. The process may be unpleasant and painful, but the issue is charming and sure. I shall come forth as gold. This was said by one who knew affliction and sorrow as few among the sons of men have known them. Yet, despite his fiery trials, he was optimistic. Let then this triumphant language be ours. I shall come forth as gold is not the language of carnal boasting, but the confidence of one whose mind was stayed upon God. There will be no credit to our account. The glory will all belong to the divine refiner. James 1, 12. 
For the present, there remain two things. First, love is the divine thermometer while we are in the crucible of testing. And he shall sit the patience of divine grace as a refiner and purifier of silver, etc. Malachi 3, 3. Second, the Lord himself is with us in the fiery furnace, as he was with the three young Hebrews, Daniel 3.25. For the future, this is sure. The most wonderful thing in heaven will not be the golden street or the golden hearths, but golden souls on which is stamped the image of God, predestinated to be conformed to the image of His Son. Praise God for such a glorious prospect, such a victorious issue, such a marvelous goal. Chapter 7 Divine Chastisement Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Hebrews 12:5. It is of first importance that we learn to draw a sharp distinction between divine punishment and divine chastisement, important for maintaining the honor and glory of God and for the peace of mind of the Christian. The distinction is very simple, yet it is often lost sight of. God's people can never by any possibility be punished for their sins, for God has already punished them at the cross. The Lord Jesus, our blessed substitute, suffered the full penalty of all our guilt. Hence it is written, The blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. Neither the justice nor the love of God will permit him to again exact payment of what Christ discharged to the full. The difference between punishment and chastisement lies not in the nature of the sufferings of the afflicted. It is most important to bear this in mind. There is a threefold distinction between the two. First, the character in which God acts. In the former, God acts as judge. In the latter, as father. Sentence of punishment is the act of a judge. A penal sentence passed on those charged with guilt. Punishment can never fall upon the child of God in this judicial sense because his guilt was all transferred to Christ. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. But while the believer's sins cannot be punished, while the Christian cannot be condemned, Romans 8, 3, yet he may be chastised. The Christian occupies an entirely different position from the non-Christian. He is a member of the family of God. The relationship which now exists between him and God is that of parent and child, and as a son, he must be disciplined for wrongdoing. Folly is bound up in the hearts of all God's children, and the rod is necessary to rebuke, to subdue, to humble. The second distinction between divine punishment and divine chastisement lies in the recipients of each. 
the objects of the former are his enemies. The subjects of the latter are his children. As the judge of all the earth, God will yet take vengeance on all his foes. As the father of his family, God maintains discipline over all his children. The one is judicial, the other parental. A third distinction is seen in the design of each. The one is retributive, the other remedial. The one flows from his anger, the other from his love. Divine punishment is never sent for the good of sinners, but for the honoring of God's law and the vindicating of his government. But divine chastisement is sent for the well-being of his children. We have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reference. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12:9 and 10. The above distinction should at once rebuke the thoughts which are so generally entertained among Christians. When the believer is smarting under the rod, let him not say, God is now punishing me for my sins. That can never be. That is most dishonoring to the blood of Christ. God is correcting thee in love, not smiting thee in wrath. Nor should the Christian regard the chastening of the Lord as a sort of necessary evil to which he must bow as submissively as possible. No, it proceeds from God's goodness and faithfulness and is one of the greatest blessings for which we have to thank Him. Chastisement evidences our divine sonship. The father of a family does not concern himself with those on the outside, but those within he guides and disciplines to make them conform to his will. Chastisement is designed for our good, to promote our highest interests. Look beyond the rod to the all-wise hand that wields it. The Hebrew Christians to whom this epistle was first addressed were passing through a great fight of afflictions, and miserably were they conducting themselves. They were the little remnant out of the Jewish nation which had believed on their Messiah during the days of his public ministry, plus those Jews who had been converted under the preaching of the apostles. It is highly probable that they had expected the messianic kingdom would at once be set up on earth and that they would be allotted the chief places of honor in it. But the millennium had not begun and their own lot became increasingly bitter. They were not only hated by the Gentiles, but ostracized by their unbelieving brethren, and it became a hard matter for them to make even a bare living. Providence held a frowning face. Many who had made a profession of Christianity had gone back to Judaism and were prospering temporally. As the afflictions of the believing Jews increased, they too were sorely tempted to turn their back upon the new faith. 
Had they been wrong in embracing Christianity? Was high heaven displeased because they had identified themselves with Jesus of Nazareth? Did not their suffering go to show that God no longer regarded them with favor? Now it is most instructive and blessed to see how the apostle met the unbelieving reasoning of their hearts. He appealed to their own scriptures. He reminded them of an exhortation found in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 and applied it to their case. Notice first the words we place in italics. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you. This shows that the exhortations of the Old Testament were not restricted to those who lived under the Old Covenant. They apply with equal force and directness to those of us living under the New Covenant. Let us not forget that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. 2 Timothy 3.16 The Old Testament, equally as much as the New Testament, was written for our learning and admonition. Second, mark the tense of the verb in our opening text. Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh. The apostle quoteth a sentence of the word written 1,000 years previously, yet he does not say which hath spoken, but which speaketh. The same principle is illustrated in that sevenfold, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith, not said unto the churches of Revelation 2 and 3. The Holy Scriptures are a living word in which God is speaking today. Consider now the words, Ye have forgotten. It was not that these Hebrew Christians were unacquainted with Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, but they had let them slip. They had forgotten the fatherhood of God and their relation of Him as His dear children. In consequence, they misinterpreted both the manner and design of God's present dealings with them. They viewed his dispensation not in the light of his love, but regarded them as signs of his displeasure or as proofs of his forgetfulness. Consequently, instead of cheerful submission, there was despondency and despair. Here is a most important lesson for us. We must interpret the mysterious providences of God, not by reason or observation, but by the Word. How often we forget the exhortation which speaketh unto us as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Unhappily, there is no word in the English language which is capable of doing justice to the Greek term here, paidia, which is rendered chastening, is only another form of paideon, which signifies young children, being the tender word that was employed by the Savior in John 21.5 and Hebrews 2.13. 
one can see at a glance the direct connection which exists between the words disciple and discipline. Equally close in the Greek is the relation between children and chastening. Sun training would be better. It has reference to God's education, nurture, and discipline of his children. It is the Father's wise and loving correction which is in view. It is true that much chastisement is the rod in the hand of the father correcting his erring child, but it is a serious mistake to confine our thoughts to this one aspect of the subject. Chastisement is by no means always the scourging of his refractive sons. Some of the saintliest of God's people, some of the most obedient of his children, have been and are the greatest sufferers. Oftentimes, God chastening instead of being retributive are corrective. They are sent to empty us of self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. They are given to discover to us hidden transgressions and to teach us the plague of our own hearts. Or again, chastisements are sent to strengthen our faith, to raise us to higher levels of experience, to bring us into a condition of usefulness. Still again, divine chastisement is sent as a preventative to keep under pride, to save us from being unduly elated over success in God's service. Let us consider briefly four entirely different examples. David. In his case, the rod was laid upon him for grievous sins, for open wickedness. His fall was occasioned by self-confidence and self-righteousness. If the reader will diligently compare the two songs of David recorded in Second Samuel 22 and 23, the one written near the beginning of his life, the other near the end, he will be struck by the great difference of spirit manifested by the writer in each. Read Second Samuel 22, 22-25, and you will not be surprised that God suffered him to have such a fall. Then turn to chapter 23 and mark the blessed change. At the beginning of verse 5, there is a heartbroken confession of failure. In verses 10 through 12, there is a God-glorifying confession, attributing victory unto the Lord. The severe scourging of David was not in vain. Job Probably he tasted of every kind of suffering which falls to man's lot. Family bereavements, loss of property, grievous bodily afflictions came fast, one on top of another. But God's end in it all was that Job should benefit therefrom and be a greater partaker of his holiness. There was not a little of self-satisfaction and self-righteousness in Job at the beginning, but at the end, when he was brought face to face with the thrice holy one, he abhorred himself. Chapter 42, verse 6. In David's case, the chastisement was retributive in Job's corrective. Abraham. 
In him, we see an illustration of an entirely different aspect of chastening. Most of the trials to which he was subjected were neither because of open sins nor for the correction of inward faults. Rather, were they sent for the development of spiritual graces. Abraham was sorely tried in various ways, but it was in order that faith might be strengthened and that patience might have its perfect work in him. Abraham was weaned from the things of this world that he might enjoy closer fellowship with Jehovah and become the friend of God. Paul And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Lest I should be exalted above measure, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. This thorn was sent not because of failure and sin, but as a preventative against pride. Note the lest, both at the beginning and end of the verse. The result of this thorn was that the beloved apostle was made more conscious of his weakness. Thus, chastisement has for one of its main objects the breaking down of self-sufficiency, the bringing us to the end of ourselves. Now, in view of these widely different aspects, chastenings which are retributive, corrective, educative, and preventative, how incompetent are we to diagnose, and how great is the folly of pronouncing a judgment concerning others. Let us not conclude, when we see a fellow Christian under the rod of God, that he is necessarily being taken to task for his sins. In our next meditation, we shall, God willing, consider the spirit in which divine chastisements are to be received. Chapter 8 Receiving Divine Chastisement My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Hebrews 12, 5 Not all chastisement is sanctified to the recipients of it. Some are hardened thereby. Others are crushed beneath it. Much depends on the spirit in which afflictions are received. There is no virtue in trials and troubles in themselves. It is only as they are blessed by God that the Christian is profited thereby. As Hebrews 12:11 informs us, it is those who are exercised under God's rod that bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. A sensitive conscience and a tender heart are the needed adjuncts. In our text, the Christian is warned against two entirely different dangers. Despise not. Despair not. These are two extremes against which it is ever necessary to keep a sharp lookout. Just as every truth of Scripture has its balancing counterpart, so has every evil its opposite. On the one hand, there is a haughty spirit which laughs at the rod, a stubborn will which refuses to be humbled thereby. On the other hand, there is a fainting which utterly sinks beneath it and gives way to despair. 
Spurgeon said, The way of righteousness is a difficult path between two mountains of error, and the great secret of the Christian's life is to wind his way along the narrow valley. 1. Despising the rod. There are a number of ways in which Christians may despise God's chastening. We mention four of them. A. By callousness. To be stoical is the policy of carnal wisdom. Make the best of a bad job. The man of the world knows no better plan than to grit his teeth and brave things out, having no divine comforter, counselor, or physician. He has to fall back on his own poor resources. It is inexpressibly sad when we see a child of God conducting himself as does a child of the devil. For a Christian to defy adversities is to despise chastisement instead of hardening himself to endure stoically. There should be a melting of the heart. B. By complaining. This is what the Hebrews did in the wilderness, and there are still many murmurers in Israel's camp. A little sickness, and we become so cross that our friends are afraid to come near us. A few days in bed, and we fret and fume like a bullock, unaccustomed to the yoke. We peevishly ask, Why this affliction? What have I done to deserve it? We look around with envious eyes and are discontented because others are carrying a lighter load. Beware, my reader. It goes hard with murmurers. God always chastises twice if we are not humbled by the first. Remind yourself of how much dross there yet is among the gold. View the corruptions of your own heart and marvel that God has not smitten you twice as severely. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. C. By criticisms. How often we question the usefulness of chastisement. As Christians, we seem to have little more spiritual good sense than we had natural wisdom as children. As boys, we thought that the rod was the least necessary thing in the home. It is so with the children of God. When things go as we like them, when some unexpected temporal blessing is bestowed, we have no difficulty in ascribing all to a kind providence. But when our plans are thwarted, when losses are ours, it is very different. Yet, is it not written, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Isaiah 45, 7 How often is the thing formed ready to complain? Why hast thou made me thus? We say, I cannot see how this can possibly profit my soul. If I had better health, I could attend the house of prayer more frequently. If I had been spared those losses in business, I would have more money for the Lord's work. What good can possibly come of this calamity? Like Jacob, we exclaim, all these things are against me. What is this but to despise the rod? 
shall thy ignorance challenge God's wisdom? Shall thy short-sightedness arraign omniscience? D. By carelessness. So many fail to mend their ways. The exhortation of our text is much needed by all of us. There are many who have despised the rod, and in consequence they have not profited thereby. Many a Christian has been corrected by God, but in vain. Sickness, reverses, bereavements have come, but they have not been sanctified by prayerful self-examination. Oh, brethren and sisters, take heed. If God be chastening thee, consider your ways. Haggai 1, 5 Ponder the path of thy feet. Proverbs 4.26 Be assured that there is some reason for the chastening. Many a Christian would not have been chastised half so severely had he diligently inquired the cause of it. 2. Fainting under it. Having been warned against despising the rod, now we are admonished not to give way to despair under it. There are at least three ways in which the Christian may faint beneath the Lord's rebuke. A. When he gives up all exertion. This is done when we sink down in despondency. The smitten one concludes that it is more than he can possibly endure. His heart fails him. Darkness swallows him up. The sun of hope is eclipsed. And the voice of thanksgiving is silent. To faint means rendering ourselves unfit for the discharge of our duties. When a person faints, he is rendered motionless. How many Christians are ready to completely give up the fight when adversity enters their life? How many are rendered quite inert when trouble comes their way? How many, by their attitude, say, God's hand is heavy upon me, I can do nothing? Ah, beloved, sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. First Thessalonians 4.13 Faint not when thou art rebuked of him. Go to the Lord about it. Recognize his hand in it. Remember thine afflictions are among thee all things which work together for good. B. When he questions his sonship. There are not a few Christians who, when the rod descends upon them, conclude that they are not sons of God after all. They forget that it is written, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, Psalm 34:19, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14:22. One says, but if I were his child, I should not be in this poverty, misery, pain. Listen to verse 8. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, and not sons. Learn, then, to look upon trials as proofs of God's love, purging, pruning, purifying thee. The father of a family does not concern himself much about those on the outside of his household. It is they who are within whom he guards and guides, nurtures and conforms to his will. So it is 
with God. C. When he despairs. Some indulge the fancy that they will never get out of their trouble. One says, I have prayed and prayed, but the clouds have not lifted. Then comfort yourself with this reflection. It is always the darkest hour that precedes the dawn. Therefore, faint not when thou art rebuked of him. But, says another, I have pleaded his promise, and things are no better. I thought he delivered those who called upon him. I have called, and he has not answered, and I fear he never will. What, child of God, speak of thy father thus? You say he will never leave off smiting because he has smitten so long? Rather say he has now smitten so long, I must soon be delivered. Despise not, faint not. May divine grace preserve both writer and reader from either sinful extreme. Chapter 9 God's Inheritance for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Deuteronomy 32.9 This verse brings before us a most blessed and wonderful line of truth, so wonderful that no human mind could possibly have invented it. It speaks of the mighty God having an inheritance. And it tells us that this inheritance is in his own people. God refused to take this world for his inheritance. It will yet be burnt up. Nor did heaven, peopled with angels, satisfy his heart. In eternity past, Jehovah said, by way of anticipation, My delights were with the sons of men. Proverbs 8.31 this is by no means the only scripture which teaches that God's inheritance is in his saints. Psalm 135.4 says, For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. In Malachi 3.17, the Lord speaks of his people as his special treasure. See margin. So Special that the highest manifestations of his love are made to them. The richest gifts of his hand are bestowed on them. The mansions on high are prepared and reserved for them. The same wondrous truth is taught in the New Testament. In Ephesians 1, we behold the Apostle Paul praying that God would give unto his people the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of their understanding being enlightened that they might know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Verse 8. This is a truly amazing expression. Not only do the saints obtain an inheritance in God, but he also secures an inheritance in them. How overwhelming the thought that the great God should deem himself the richer because of our faith, our love, and worship. Surely this is one of the most marvelous truths revealed in Holy Writ, that God should pick up 
up poor sinners and make them his inheritance. Yet, so it is. But what need has God of us? How can we possibly enrich him? Does he not have everything? Wisdom, power, grace, and glory? All true. Yet there is something that he needs. Yes, needs. Namely, vessels. Just as the sun needs the earth to shine upon, so God needs vessels to fill. Vessels through which his glory may be reflected. Vessels on which the riches of his grace may be lavished. Mark that God's people are not only called his portion, his special treasure, but also his inheritance. This suggests three things. First, an inheritance is obtained through death. So God's inheritance is secured to him through the death of his beloved son. Second, an inheritance denotes perpetuity. To a man and his heirs forever are the terms often used. Third, an inheritance is for possession. It is something which is entered into, lived upon, enjoyed. Let us now consider five things about God's inheritance. One, God purposed to have such an inheritance. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Psalm 33:12. The nation here is identical with the holy nation, the chosen generation, royal priesthood, peculiar people of 1 Peter 2:9. This favored people was chosen by God to be his inheritance. It was not an afterthought with him, but decreed by him in eternity past. Ere the foundation of the world, God fixed his heart upon having them for himself. Two, God has purchased his people for an inheritance. In Ephesians 1.14, we are told that the Holy Spirit is the earnest, of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So again in Acts 20:28 we read of the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. God has not only redeemed his people from bondage and death, but for himself. 3. God comes and dwells in the midst of his inheritance. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Psalm 94:14. A clear proof that these scriptures are not referring to the nation of Israel after the flesh. Just as Jehovah tabernacled in the midst of the redeemed Hebrews, so he now indwells his church both collectively and individually. Know ye not that ye plural, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, 1 Corinthians 3.16, know ye not that your body, singular, is the temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6.19. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.